You are listening to KBUT 90.3 Crested Butte and KGNI 88.7 Gunnison. Thanks for tuning in to KBUT. I'm Christopher Biddle, and it's 6 p.m. on this warm spring Monday evening here in the Gunnison Valley. We're happy to bring you the next installment of our series of panel discussions with local officials talking about their responses to the COVID-19 crisis. The conversation has shifted today. New public health orders, both from the governor and local health officials, went into effect. Some of the first moves towards reopening of the economy and a return to regular life. Uh, We will be answering your questions about those orders and other facets reopening tonight with our panel, which includes Joni Reynolds, director of Gunnison County Public Health. Hi, Joni. How are you? Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us this evening. Also on the call, Jonathan Houck, chair of the Gunnison Board of County Commissioners. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, and good evening, Gunnison Valley. Kathy Bigano of the One Valley Leadership Council and Community Development Director here with us as well. Hello, Kathy. Hello, Chris. Uh, and Darcy Perkins of the Ice Lab at Western Colorado University, who has been working with industry groups and the business community. Thank you for joining us, Darcy. Thanks for having me. And as always, thank you so much to my uh, co-host for these sessions, Chris Rourke, editor of the Gunnison Country Times. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks. Uh, I want to remind listeners, we are taking calls. You can call in right now to 970-349-7444. We also are taking questions on our Facebook page, KBUT News COVID-19 in the Gunnison Valley. We have gotten a large response so far. Um, A fair amount of questions have come in this evening uh, and today. Uh, We work our best to answer those questions. Uh, I wanted to start out because there are new public health orders today. I wanted to start out by talking with Joni Reynolds first by asking what are the the things that we need to know today, um, most pertinent things about the public health order. And then I also understand that the investigative science team as part of the COVID-19 response team uh, has put out an 18 page report on why we're on you know, the science behind the decision making. Uh, and I'm going to ask Joni Reynolds to do our best to condense that 18 page report uh, and let us know some of the science behind the decision making. Um, so Joni. Thanks, Chris. So yeah, we, I did issue a new public health order. I issued it on Saturday. <clears throat> Changes went into effect on three different dates. Uh, the first date was today where the group size uh, for gatherings increased to 10 from the pre- prior, prior order that was at one. A library can offer curbside or delivery as long as they comply with paragraph N in the public health orders. Non-resident homeowners are welcome to return. No exemption is necessary, asking that they uh, complete an anonymous online um, survey asking when they'll be coming and the dates they tend to uh, intend to stay. They are required to isolate for seven days um, when they do come to the county. And then I made a change in the residents travel out of the county. So I changed that, that any resident leaving the county for more than 24 hours is required to self-isolate for seven days or longer if they have symptoms. 
Any resident who leaves the county for less than 24 hours is strongly encouraged, but no longer required to self-isolate for the seven days. The next set of changes actually occur on May 1st. And on May 1st, uh, childcare may reopen, again, complying with public health orders, particularly paragraph N. Retail, salons, and uh, businesses may reopen on May 1st, um, also uh, complying with the public health orders, particularly paragraph N. Real estate may resume with home showings, um, but no open houses. They also are required to comply with the public health order, particularly paragraph N. And then personal services, including those lawns, uh, dog groomers um, can also resume, also complying with public health orders, paragraph N particularly. And then the last implementation date in this set of public health orders is for May 4th, where professional offices um, such as attorneys, accountants, may um, conduct office businesses with members of the public. Um, there are some additional requirements. Again, those are highlighted in paragraph N. Sure. So, and you're referring to paragraph N. Anybody who wants to read the public health orders, uh, they are up on the Gunnison County website, and there's uh, sort of a bulleted bullet point version of it so you can check out uh you know quickly the the um most important changes that went into effect today uh mostly having to do with travel restrictions and then i guess uh, and then of course actually the um change in the number of uh, group gatherings um is definitely you know a significant change from what um, we've been dealing with for about a month now. Um, so we have some questions about why certain industry groups, we got a lot of questions about that, why certain industry groups were included in this and why certain groups weren't. However, I would like to, um, just before we get into that, learn more about what the investigative science team uh, uh, learned and, and, and how we're using that information uh, to guide this reopening. Sure. So the investigative science team really did quite a bit of um, data uh, analysis as well as extraction, and they really looked and reviewed some of the national and Colorado recommendations, tried to look at some of the unique factors here in Gunnison, and offered um, their insights and initial recommendations. They didn't um, stage or uh, indicate in their recommendations a particular timeline. They just were looking at overall um, as possible different uh, recommendations could be implemented. And so they really looked at um, all of those uh, state and national guidelines, ones that I've looked at um, from the Colorado Association of Local Public Health Officials, from Dr. Tom Creeden, from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, along with Johns Hopkins University are some of the <clears throat> most prominent reference materials that are being utilized. They um, considered the prior public health orders and the effect or the impact of those prior public health orders. They also looked at what they estimate the severity of the initial outbreak was in our county. They estimate that likely about five to 10% of our population was infected. The entire county was infected um, with the virus. So leaving about 90 to 95% of our <clears throat> county still vulnerable to the virus and a, uh, they made a, a statement of a strong potential for a second wave of infections um, of equal or greater severity if this is not carefully managed. Um, 
They also um, indicated that it, the transmission is unlikely to stop through what we call herd immunity or where 80% or more of the population uh, likely has some protection against the virus. And since we're at five to 10%, it's unlikely we would get to 80% before a vaccine is available. Also really looking at, um, because of the risk for individuals who can have severe symptoms or complications, obviously some deaths that have occurred in our county to take particular attention to those that are at risk, including based on age or underlying health conditions. And those are probably the high points in the report. It is a dense report, it has a lot of information in it, and it is available for individuals that are interested in reviewing it closely. Um, and so, Joni, I know that you've had to answer a lot of these questions, and I've heard you say that there has been, you know, from specific uh, industry groups such as uh, salons, uh, you know, pressure to reopen the, the economy. Can you speak to why, um, for instance, salons were included in this, but certain other service uh, businesses like massage parlors or tattoo parlors, things like that were not included? Yeah, so I had previously included uh, medical massage in the public health orders and really wanted to afford the opportunity for those in that profession to be able to carry their business forward. Actually, that was two public health orders ago. And so I think the distinction there is, is, is around non-medical massages, which there's probably few that would be classified as non-medical. Most people that um, go for a massage, it has to do with stress reduction. It has to do with um, aligning it with other health measures that they're taking individually. And so I really wanted to support that from early on, um, along with other health services that were available in the county. For um, tattoo parlors and some of the other um, personal services, and I'm sorry, really um, tattoo artists and parlors isn't appropriate for really a reference, but um, really the professionals that are in that business conduct a business and I, um, really had to look at some of the early guidance that was come out from the state health department, which was actually pretty limited and the timing of it wasn't ideal for me to look at my own public health orders before issuing those. And so I did not include tattoo um, professionals and I did not include non-medical massage and I did not include personal trainers. Again, some of that had to do with the early guidance that was pretty limited from the state in my interest in actually doing this in a way that had good guidance and actually had consideration for the full range of needs. I did think that it was appropriate to include some services in future waves. And so I restrained from including them this time. And I, I mean, I, and I know that just in past conversation, I know that salons in particular and barbers, I would assume would fall into that were a group that were putting pressure on to reopen in particular. Did that help their cause that they were actively involved in, in communicating with you, their desire to get back to work? Um, and, you know, would that have helped another industry group include, you know, be included on this public record or public order? I apologize. Thanks, Chris, for the question. And, and my answer would be no. I really have tried to, um, it, as much as possible, not get distracted by the influencers and those that are um, approaching from a perspective of why they um, are demanding that certain things happen. I really tried to focus in on the guidance. I've tried to focus in on a stepwise approach using a public health model 
And, and that's been challenging. I can't say that I heard more from salons than I've heard from other business sectors. I've heard from a lot of business sectors. And I wouldn't say that any one voice has been louder than another voice. And definitely none of those voices have influenced me to make a decision. Um, so I wanted to maybe then pivot over to Darcy Perkins with the Ice Lab because you've been working with the different industry groups. Are you, do you, is there a sense that they are, you know, satisfied with their ability to communicate with the county over this reopening? Because I know that that was a stated goal was that the county would, you know, work with these groups to figure out the best path forward into reopening. And I'm wondering if, you know, you've been able to get your get a sense from the business community on on whether or not they're happy with that um yeah that's a good question um to be honest i haven't done a survey so um i think it depends on who you ask i think we have had a lot of success with communication and we've gotten answers to questions joni has done a phenomenal job of answering q a on a 24 hour basis. And we've been able to get answers back quickly and rapidly. Um, I think the communication piece has been really good. I think people are pretty happy. They may not like the answers they're getting fully, but I think the communication is there. Um, but that's my perspective. And again, I haven't done a survey and I think really the people need to answer that question. Sure. And well, and perhaps I can maybe shift that question over to Chris Work, possibly, who might have some insight uh, into speaking with members of the business community. Uh, have you been able to take a temperature on that, uh, that topic, Chris? Well, I've talked to some business owners that are frustrated with the format. Um, I have not sat in on them personally, uh, you know, in any quantity. I, I did sit in on the lodging industry one this morning. Um, what I did see was some adaptation towards the end of the call. Um, people want, didn't want to wait a week for answers. They, the lodging industry needs to know now. And you know, one of the questions I have is, why can't a date be set to reopen? And then as long as the conditions are met along the way, then we stick to that date because there is so much uncertainty with the lodging community right now. They have to make plans. They have deposits for, um, for people who've made reservations a year ago. Um, so I, I feel like they need a little more certainty at this point. I mean, is there a way that that can come about? So anyway. Yeah, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to actually jump in. This is Jonathan. And I think what's one, I, I want to talk about uh, the idea that timelines, uh, and we've been hearing that people want some more definitive timelines, and that's a reasonable expectation. And timelines can be seen as goals or goalposts. And I don't think we are uh, not interested in not providing those dates. I mean, that's something we should consider because we're hearing that feedback from our constituency. But it's interesting. I'll, I'll use Chafee County as an example. Many people are very excited to go. I look at Chafee County's plan and it says on June 1st, we open up. Right. I spent an hour and a half this morning on, uh, or excuse me, on Sunday morning with a commissioner from Chafee County uh, getting, help me understand your order. Help me how you got to that date. And it became very clear that they're setting that date. It is a goal. It is a place they want to get to, but many factors have to fall in line for that to happen. And that means they have to continually follow the public health order as it is. So for example, if you look at Chafee County's uh, where they're at today, Gunnison County is less restrictive 
right now on April 27th in Chaffee County. Yeah, for a week, for a week, Jonathan. And so in a week, then they get to some of, they get to the same place we're at today. And the point being is, and I think you want a direct answer, I'm gonna give you a direct answer, is it, it is a it is a tough place to say on June first this will happen. That is that is over a month away, and we measure progress in weeks. And so what we know is under the guidelines from the state, from CDPHEs, from CDC, we had to have two weeks of a certain measure of not seeing a growth in cases, and that allows us then to start moving into some next phases. And where are we going to be in two weeks from now? Two weeks from then, and really. I'm not opposed, and and we'll, you know, Joni can can weigh in on this as well uh, of setting some timelines with dates on them. But I think it's important to turn back to the community and remind them: if you set goals and if you set dates, the thing that gets you to those goals and those dates is doing the good work that the community has done. And I don't want to miss the the the, the point that the community is doing this work. We flatten the curve because the community responded. Not only responded, responded efficiently quickly and and did it well. And so now we're going to start opening up a little bit. So we're going to talk about group size and retail and office space and restaurants and travel. Those things are all starting to open up today a little bit more. There's some more things that trigger on May 1 and there's some more things that trigger on May 4th. So from now to a week, things are opening more. But you know what that means as a community, if we want to see that period go a couple weeks, maybe four weeks instead of eight, that means we're going to still limit our trips to the store. We're still going to practice social distancing. We're still going to take all the best practices we've been doing and not throw them out the window. Because the worst case scenario for us is that we get a spike that makes us take a few steps back. If we can continue to slowly, and I know this is painful for people, but it's where we're at and it's our new reality is we're working forward and it is not lost on us. We are having a massive economic crisis right alongside a public health crisis. One is not exclusive of the other. And even in my own home, my wife's business is closed and her person who works for her is over 60 is not at work. And most of the people that rent space from her aren't working. And so I see it on a personal level of what uh, in our household we're struggling with, with our business and what the future looks like for us and on the policy and where I sit. And so our timelines and dates, what people want, I've been hearing some response of yes. But people need to understand June 1st is a ways away. And as my colleague in Chaffee County said to me, a lot of things have to fall in place with adhering to public health guidelines for that June 1 to become realistic. So then why don't you set the date of June 1st and say, if we meet this criteria, if we continue to do the good community work and we meet the criteria, we are open June 1st, plan on June 1st, but be aware that you may have to adjust it. You may have to issue refunds or maybe reschedule people. I think if you don't have lodging, you don't. You can open retail, but retail is gonna suffer. Everything is gonna suffer if we don't have lodging. So I think there is a case to be made for setting a date and setting up criteria instead of just this, oh, let's keep doing a good job and let's just hope that in the future, this some mystical date in the future, we can open. I think that's fair. Yes, I think it is. And I think if you notice, the first comment I made was, we want things to proceed down the road of opening. We wanna move in that direction. That helps our economy. It helps the robustness of our community health. I don't want us to be moving backwards, 
but I also want to manage expectations for folks. And I'm encouraged to have this conversation. We have a work session tomorrow with the Board of County Commissioners. Um, I'm very interested in having this conversation and I'm committed to having this conversation about actually setting some calendar dates. I'm gonna need Joni's input for that as well. I'm gonna need to hear from Darcy and, and John Mesner and the work they're doing with the industry subgroups. Kathy's got a role in this and the work that she's doing leading the economic sector within incident command. And, and so are we shying away from looking at the idea of setting a date? No. I think that is something that we've heard loud and clear from the community they expect. But I also want people to understand and, and, and really know that everyone has dates. All these different counties do and as well as across the state. And I'll give you a good example. If we had more ability today to be more open than we are, over half the state population wise is still on till May 8th on a stay at home order. And so even though the state order came out today, officials in the city and county of Denver, Adams County, Arapahoe County, Boulder County, the city and county of Broomfield and Jefferson County have all extended their stay at home orders till May 8th, which means and there's a statewide travel ban. You have to stay in the county where you live and work. And so there are there are things that are outside the decision making of Gunnison County. Our decisions, Joni is making decisions based on what's best for Gunnison County, but we need to also understand if we were an anomaly within the state and we could be more open than we are right now, there's a limited pool of people that can travel in the state and where most of our visitors come from, there's travel restrictions in Texas, there's travel restrictions in Louisiana, there's travel restrictions in a lot of states that come to Gunnison. We want our economy up and going. This is an economic crisis and people need to hear that we're seeing this and responding in that way. And I understand the desire to have an answer today. I don't want to sit on another Zoom. I don't want to be part of a subgroup. I don't <laughs> want to do that. That's natural. That is part of this. And I and I feel it, like I said, personally, professionally, I feel it and mourn for that in my community. People are hurting. And we haven't been here before. Gunnison County hasn't been here before. The state of Colorado hasn't been here before. Our country has not been here before. There were folks in our county that did in 1918, but I don't have any of those people I can go back to for suggestions or consideration. This is new and we have to accept it. It's new for everyone. And our goal is not to put people out of business. Our goal is not to compromise health decisions. Our goal is to get our community back to vibrant as soon as possible. And starting today, based on the great work that the community did in the response to flatten the curve. Today is the starting of these things opening up. And I would put where Gunnison County is, there's a lot of chatter about all these other counties and what they're doing. I would say, and, and, the, and the data is there for folks to look at, and I've been compiling it. Uh, we're right in there with considering the level of infection we have, the progress we've made. It's there in comparison to other counties. Great, thank you. Joni, did you want to add to that? Well, I just appreciated Chris raising the question and our initial um, attempt was to bring out the tentative reopening plan and while it didn't provide a date certain, our goal was to provide opportunity for folks to see what that plan could look like sketched out um, into the future. And definitely this is a weekly analysis that really requires us to have this type of conversation. I'm open and interested and Darcy's working to um, connect me along with Kathy Pagano and her work so that I can provide the input, listen and hear the input that's needed to give to me. And at the same time, really try to balance the path that we're moving on. This, this path is not without peril on both sides. And I totally appreciate that. It weighs extremely heavy on me 
And I do not take it lightly that there are risks on both sides and the impacts are real across the board. I get that. And I want folks to know I understand that and I am still trying to find a safe path to move forward in a stepwise fashion with a public health science helping to push that. But I also understand that folks want to hear exactly what they need to hear now. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I'm trying to work with the groups to really be more present, more available, to hear more of that input to try to meet some of those needs. Something, Joni, I want to get into, and, and Jonathan, I have a follow-up question for you, because I think this is really important also for the community here. Joni, when you first came here, we did an article on you, and I'm familiar with your background. A lot of people are not. I'd like you to tell me about your background. Tell me about the last job you worked before you came to Gunnison County and what your background is. Sure. I worked for the state of Colorado at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and I served as the public health director for the state of Colorado for the five years before I came to Gunnison County. The 10 years prior to that, I served at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment at the state health department for 10 years um, in a variety of leadership roles. And I coordinated and led the statewide response for um, H1N1 influenza vaccination program, as well as um, carried uh, forward the smallpox response at the state level, which was post 9-11, which was also a terrifying time in our history. Um, prior to that, I worked for local public health departments uh, throughout the front range from Colorado Springs to the Metro Denver area. And I worked as a um, uh, manager, director, and a supervisor, and initially started um, back 30 years ago now, um, actually in people's homes, doing home visits and helping individuals in need. So um, my career includes um, all public health over the 30 years, and I spent my time in education, undergraduate nursing, and my graduate degree is community health nursing. I'm certified by Colorado as a clinical nurse specialist in the area of public health. And, and the follow-up question I have for Jonathan is, I don't feel like people really understand this truly, is that there is a decentralization of the authority that a public health director and say elected officials make, and that is in state law. Can you speak to the purpose of why, either one of you, speak to the purpose of why there is a decentralization of that authority, and then also why a public health director has this authority according to state law? Jonathan? Jonathan, I think you're muted still. There we go. Yeah. I'd be happy to, to start. In 2008, the state legislature passed uh, a Colorado, it's Colorado revised, for anyone who wants to get wonky, it's Colorado revised statute 25-1-506. Uh, and it's very specific to county and, and district public health agencies. And of the many things that it empowers a public health agency to do, it's to investigate, control the causes of, of uh, communicable diseases affecting public health, to maintain and enforce and isolate and quarantine in pursuance thereof, I'm reading right from the statute, um, for the purpose to exercise physical control over property and over the persons of the people with the jurisdictions of the agency, as long as it is for the protection of public health, to close schools and public places and prohibit gatherings. And again, it's, it's Colorado Revised Statute 25-1-506. And as I've talked to people who are familiar with it when it was passed, is the concern was, and I think it's a very valid one, when you have a public health emergency, you need someone with expertise in public health. And the Board of County Commissioners, we are empowered to make lots of decisions. The background that your three county commissioners come from is very varied and different. 
Uh, Roland has been a contractor and he, he's been a business owner for many years. John has owned multiple uh, small businesses as well as uh, has worked in, in, the, in the government sector. I came from a background of education and along with my wife, I'm a small business owner. None of us have a background in public health. And often people worry that politicians make decisions that benefits them or their supporters or people in their circle. When you have a public health emergency, and I believe in the reason the statute was passed, was to make sure that the person most empowered is the person who has the most expertise. And I think what you heard from Joni and in and, and reference to her background and, and, and her expertise and her career, um, I as a county commissioner am relieved and fully support the fact that decisions of this magnitude are made in, being made by someone in our community as empowered by the laws of the state of Colorado who has the most experience and expertise in our community to do this. Joni was hired to work for Gunnison County with the full confidence of her skills and abilities. And that is why the state legislature empowered her through this with that, with that ability to make those kind of decisions. So Joni, I don't, I don't know if you want to add on to it from the other end, but I wanted to give the perspective of, of how that was passed. No, I think you covered that well. Thanks, Jonathan. What kind of support is Joni getting though in this decision-making process? I mean, it's a difficult situation when you're putting your public health official up and uh, she's either an angel or a demon according to public you know, opinion right now, depending on where you fall on the decisions being made. How are the Board of County Commissioners supporting her with these decisions and coming out and saying, you know, here we have a situation at the state. Governor Polis is the one, you know, standing up there and, and saying, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. Um, I'm just curious about what more support she could be given as far as uh, the perception of leadership and how these decisions are being made. I, I think one that's really important and, and we've done is a clean separation between her decision-making authority and, and our responsibilities within this emergency. So the Board of County Commissioners is not active in the EOC. We are not physically in the space. We don't meet with Joni. We don't discuss her decisions. Those decisions are hers. And as she makes those decisions, and she, I know, and I'd like her to, to kind of broaden who she works with, but I'm well aware that she's working with best management practices, the CDC, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, a team of experts that she works with, Gunnison Valley Health, and, and she'll roll through all that expertise. I feel my responsibility is, and the board's responsibility is, Joni will make these public health decisions. She will use the county attorney's office to help draft these into the format that go out into the public. She has at her disposal a public information office that helps translate what those looks like into, into layman's terms so people can understand what we're doing. But when Joni says, I need some help getting this funding or these supplies or those resources or this personnel, or we need funding that goes from the feds to the state, she rings the bell to us and says, or Scott Morrill in the Incident Command Center, or CJ, and says, this is what we need. And my job as, and, and the board's job, and the one that Roland, John, and I take very seriously is, when she says, go ring this bell, we're going to go ring that bell until we are told no. And if we're told no, we're going to ring it again until we get a yes. And our job has been to make sure that she can concentrate on working on decision-making around the event and let us go and work on how do we take in and find ways to address the economic piece? How do we go ahead and work on issues of making sure the county gets from the state and from the feds 
things that are in the pipeline? How do we make sure that we can empower and work with the ICE lab and with the OVLC? How can we take different departments within the county that can prioritize recovery efforts or things that are specifically tied to making sure that Joni's plate and Joni's focus is on the health issue? How can we address those other issues? But I think it's important for people to understand one of the most important things we can do is not put undue political influence on her decision-making. We need to give her the space, which we do, and she has our trust and our confidence. Okay, thank you. And you are listening to KBUT Community Radio News. This is a special broadcast Q&A with local officials discussing uh, the next phase of the response to the COVID-19 crisis here in the Gunnison Valley. Uh, just today, new public health orders went into effect that began opening, reopening uh, the Gunnison Valley economy. And we're here to discuss uh, that transition, what it's looking like. I want to make sure to get Kathy Pagano in on this conversation. Kathy uh, is Community Development Director for Gunnison County, as well as a representative of the One Valley Leadership Council. Uh, which in the past has worked on a couple of issues um, that is, has, have weaknesses that were exposed um, in the fallout of the COVID-19 crisis. Last week, for instance, uh, the Valley was plagued with internet connection issues. Um, all the while, kids were trying to attend classes online. People were trying to work from home. Um, that was something that came up. Also, uh, diversity in our economy, um, d- relying purely on tourism. We've obviously uh, exposed, you know, some of the weaknesses around that. Um, so, you know, speaking from the One Valley Leadership Council, how is this initiative going to make strides to do to, uh, you know, address things like this in the long and, and midterm, which has been the stated goal of the One Valley Leadership in their response to this? Yeah, so the One Valley Leadership Council um, is, um, you know, right now considering how they can uh, restart or um, initiate a long-term resiliency plan for Gunnison County, um, building upon the work that we've already done during the One Valley Prosperity Project. So during that project, we identified four areas that included economic resiliency, affordable housing, sustainable tourism, and then community health and equity. Um, And many of the issues that were raised there that we're working on currently um, were highlighted still as you know needing more work and more support. So the internet access that you described, that was certainly described or um, stated as a goal in the One Valley Prosperity Project in 2016. Um, we have made improvements to that. Um, I did talk to our IT person um, who heads up that effort on the county's behalf um, for improving internet infrastructure. Um, and he did describe that The outages that we saw last week, fortunately, didn't affect um, some of the major institutions, um, the county, the municipalities, um, and others um, because of the redundancies that they've created right now. Now, certainly that didn't cover everybody, um, and so there's still more work to be done, um, but that is something that there is a team already working on um, and will continue to do more work on. We're certainly seeing that internet service is an essential Um, for our community members, for children that are homeschooling, for people that need to be telecommuting right now. Um, It's not something that's an option um, anymore. It is an essential service. And did you want to speak at all to the diversification of the economy and how the the One Valley leadership, you know, plans to work on that um, or, you know, yeah, yeah, in this in the fallout of this crisis? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So, you know, one of the outcomes of the last One Valley Prosperity Project was the development of the ICE Lab. Um, The ICE Lab is housed at Western Colorado University, was initially um, 
a project and funded and supported by Western Colorado University um, and has now transitioned um, away from that a little bit and is supported by TAP um, and others. But the mission of the ICE Lab and Darcy can certainly chime in because she is, um, you know, the, one of the key components of the ICE Lab is to support and grow entrepreneurship and jobs in our community. And so they have been working hard over these years to um, support local entrepreneurs, grow their businesses, um, grow them in a way that they have more jobs, that they have more resiliency, that it's not all um, so focused in one sector or another. You know, we've been very heavy in construction um, and tourism for a large number of years. Um, and so the ISLAP has really helped us to begin to diversify that and find other opportunities, whether it be manufacturing, um, distilleries and others um, that we can have better diversification of our economy um, and, and find resilience in these storms that we, you know, that we see, whether it be a recession, 9-11, a pandemic, all sorts of things that, um, you know, we may never have contemplated, um, but how can we move through those in a way that our economy survives and our residents um, make it through intact? Sure. And Darcy, did you want to add anything to that, how the Ice Lab may be working to uh, diversify the Gunnison Valley economy so that, you know, in the future when uh, tourism must be shut down, um, if and when that ever happens again, um, you know, the, the, the area might have a better chance of weathering that economically. Well, I think uh, Kathy really hit, hit the high points. Um, I would say that the Ice Lab, David and I, um, we've really shifted our focus in the last six weeks. We are very focused on recovery. Um, we want to see every business that can survive this COVID in our community to survive. And we're putting uh, full efforts into that. Um, at the same time, we're running an incubator program right now with three really promising and sharp founders of new companies. They're all local. They're all local businesses. Um, and that's been going on through all of this. So as much as recovery is taking a lot of our time, I know that diversification is going to become part of this recovery process and really important. And that will involve many of the programs we've been working on uh, prior to this. So there's a lot of work to do. So, and this is sort of related to long-term, this is actually submitted by one of our listeners. Uh, and I believe this is more specifically for Jonathan Houck. Uh, so long-term economic recovery here in the Gunnison Valley will depend heavily on both the state and federal government's responses, as well as the local response. Um, you know, as a member of the board of County commissioners, can you describe how Gunnison County is represented at those levels for example, are you satisfied with your ability to communicate and work with other elected officials, elected lawmakers in order to represent the county's best interests? Sure, absolutely. And, and not only myself, but, but Rowan and John as well. Um, we have really strong relationships at the federal level, at the state level, uh, and counties across the state, uh, and, and as well as our neighbors and friends. You know, regular, when I say regular, multiple times off in a day, contact with Senator Bennett, Senator Gardner, and Congressman Tipton's offices on these federal programs. Uh, you know, John Mesner has been our, our lead in working with uh, Governor Polis and, and his cabinet and, and resources there. Um, Roland has been incredibly uh, touching base in an incredible way with Region 10, which is the economic development for this region, includes our neighbors in Montrose and Delta. 
Uray and San Miguel counties as well. And so we also are meeting uh, with regularity. Um, I get on a call twice a week uh, in the evenings with a county commissioner from each of the Southwest Colorado counties. We have a lot of the similar um, challenges. So we're, we're trading ideas, we're trading um, information. What are you doing? You know, for example, I've spent a good amount of time talking to a friend of mine who's a Mesa County commissioner about how she was approaching uh, what they're doing. I've done the same with Chafee, doing the same with Montrose. Um, and, and so making sure we're, we're utilizing all of those efforts. We, uh, the Colorado associations that we belong to that represent counties uh, within our region, with across the state. Um, and so we feel that uh, we are not leaving out any opportunity to go advocate for us. And the relationships built over time um, are really important at this point. We feel really lucky to have uh, that kind of uh, ability um, from the federal, state, and, and local level uh, and then I also don't want to miss talking about Crested Butte, Mount Crested Butte, uh, City of Gunnison, the municipalities. We're all working with them as well. All of us are working together on this. We've got our, our chambers are involved, the business owners are involved, the subgroups are involved, the ice lab, the university, Vail Resorts. Um, and so the relationships aren't only governmental, they're also the nonprofit community working with the community foundation. Um, we're, we're trying to make sure that, that we, um, collaborate because there's a lot of good ideas and a lot of smart people in this community and government can't be the only one with the answers, but good government goes and finds the answers and the contributions from the, the community as well. And so our, our relational skills with, with the governments is really good, but it's also, we're trying to make it broader than that. Can I follow up and, and, and apply that question as well to federal agencies, especially public land managers, because uh, this dance that we're entering into with the reopening of the Gunnison Valley economy. Um, obviously, much of the allure in our summer tourism, especially, is access to public lands. Um, are you know you satisfied with your ability to to work with uh, public land managers? To you know, is is that going to be a delicate conversation? Let's say, for instance, the U.S. Forest Service. I believe still has a ban on designated camping right now. Let's say Gunnison County wanted to lift that. Um, you know, would you be comfortable approaching the, US, the Forest Service and talking to them about that? And how do you think that would play out? Yeah, not, not only are we comfortable, but those conversations have been ongoing uh, since the beginning. So Park Service, Forest Service, BLM, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, you know, because of the work we do with sage grouse, gate closures around that. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And so, for example, we've been having us, let's use the fire service as an example. Some of those closures on uh, camping areas are from the, this region of the fire service. So multiple Western states where they've closed, developed camping and things of that nature. But we also realize that as we're coming into the spring season and more of this uh, terrain is in the season when it opens up and we kind of move out of mud season, uh, what is that, you know, how does that help the efforts, but also how does that hinder uh, you know, opportunities within our community. And so those conversations are back and forth. Um, and those guys have been partners, you know, much longer than just getting into this incident. Uh, we meet with them regularly, we work with them regularly, the store committee they're part of. Um, they, are, they are embedded in huge efforts across the community. We have representation from them on the One Valley Prosperity Project. So those relationships are solid. So the discussions are solid and, and the actionable items we're ready to work on together. Trust has been built and that's important to us. Hey, Jonathan, in mm -hmm. light of that, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, good. In light of that, uh, let's ask the question everybody's asking. When does the Blue Mesa open? What are you hearing? 
So Blue Mesa has a couple things that when I talked to the park last that were of consideration for them. One was conditions, and, and I believe it's mostly ice-free now, so I'm interested to see where they're reevaluating there. Uh, one of the other pieces, though, is it's the largest body of water in the state of Colorado, and through diligence of the sporting community um, and, and through Colorado Parks and Wildlife, it's remained muscle-free, and there's big concerns about what would happen if the, the zebra mussel uh, infestation reach Blue Mesa. So a lot of their issues around boating aren't just so people can't boat. They are, can we man with good practices at the federal government? And, and you've seen the federal administration roll out their needs for uh, social distancing and how you can perform work while meeting all the criteria and best practices. So how can they uh, open up? They're going to have to look at how do we do muscle inspections? How do we man and staff the boat ramps? What is our response rate? And then we start getting into things that Anyone that's familiar with our great EMS response we have in this community, when the swift water or the water rescue teams have to go out, that deploys a lot of folks. And a lot of those folks are also our ambulance drivers. And they're also folks that work in the hospital or connected to EMS or law enforcement or agency folks who right now, like all of us, have taken on multiple roles. And so the park service is in that balancing. They understand the desire of the community. They have not closed it off to shoreline fishing, um, but the boating part and boating for fishing um, has had an impact and, and the park service has been a partner in being very alert of, and, and they receive as much uh, pressure as we do that that resource needs to be open. And so they will, when they feel that they can adequately from a health and from a personnel standpoint, manage those issues, I, I believe they will open it. Um, and I'd, I'd actually like to pivot to the uh, related question, though, because we are talking about access to public lands. Uh, the a, a technical read, and this is a question that was submitted by a listener as well, uh, a technical read of the most recent public health order uh, may imply that non-resident homeowners are still not permitted to use um, public land. The, the, the language used in the, in the order says that residents may use it. It is for residents only, but it um, doesn't refers differently to non-resident uh, homeowners. I'm just wondering, Joni, if that was intentional, if, of course, assuming that, you know, once these people come back to the valley that they're isolating for seven days, um, you know, is it okay for them to go out camping uh, to use public lands um, as well? Was that an oversight or was that intentional? was an oversight. It wasn't intentional. I anticipate that all the folks that live here in the Valley full-time or part-time would have the benefit of enjoying those public lands. And um, I'll get that corrected. I appreciate you bringing that up to my attention. Sure. And just while we're at it, are there any other, because, you know, these are uh, public health orders that have to be rolled out in a certain, uh, you know, certain order. Are there any other uh, things that you'd revise that you've uh, picked up on since com coming out with this public health order? Well, I've certainly gotten a lot of feedback pretty quickly. And so I'm trying to sift through some of that feedback to really, um, you know, embrace the feedback. I do. I, I think um, sometimes the the tone and the manner can be different than what I would um, be most comfortable with. But um, I'm getting at least familiar, if not comfortable, with being uncomfortable. So um, there has been some feedback about, use, you know, some of the language that's used in there that may uh, fit from a legal tone but may not fit. From really recognizing different professions. I made um, the mistake earlier of really using the phrase parlor and it's not appropriate for me to use that. It's not appropriate for that to be in the public health orders. And so some of those semantics um, that have meaning, words have meaning and the words have power, I'll get those adjusted for sure. And um, other things I'm really hearing feedback about are really about different groups and their interest in really 
using their expertise within their business sector to really guide how they can reopen safely. And I'm really interested in learning more and hearing more and really wanting to integrate that um, in the, you know, in the stepwise forward movement that I'm really hopeful and optimistic we'll be able to do in the coming weeks. Um, and so, Johnny, I wanted to stick with you. And first of all, I, I should take the time to remind us where we have about uh, 13 minutes before 7 p.m. Um, trying our best to answer all the questions that we can in this time. Uh, and I don't think we should be taking any more questions now because we're not going to be able to get to all the ones that we have. Um, but we will make a recording of this available. And it sounds like a lot of these conversations will be ongoing. And we will, of course, be continuing to do this panel every Monday night at 6 p.m. So, um, um, we'll, we'll we'll continue to answer your questions, but Joni, we've heard for a long time that uh, reopening is going to be very dependent uh, on two factors: on testing and contract or contact tracing. Can you first can you give us updates on those two items? I, I feel like we every time Joni and I talk, I have to ask for an update on what the testing kits, what the testing situation is here in our county. I understand we have a thousand test kits available to us. Yes. Talk to us about testing. Yeah. Um, thanks, Chris. I think that the testing question could be asked every time, almost every day where we're at with that. I can tell you that we're very um, well positioned to continue to do the PCR, the poly polymerase chain reaction testing, which is really looking for the RNA or really the fingerprint of this virus um, through the nasal swabs that we've been doing at our screening sites. We have many, many hundreds of um, swabs that we can use to do that testing. And what we prioritize that testing for is to be able to sustain that for weeks. Um, if we didn't get any more supplies, to use that for those individuals that either have symptoms or are in an at-risk occupation, like in a healthcare setting, EMS, um, police, law enforcement, those types of positions. And so we are continuing to try to find other resources to do more testing. There is quite a quandary out there with the um, serology testing and really looking at antibodies. And it, it looks like from the best evidence I can see most recently um, this weekend when a, a new report was released is that we're a ways away from really having reliable serology testing available to tell us accurately about antibodies for individuals or for the community. I have confidence we'll get there, but we're not there yet. The other thing that I'm really working hard to get is that we have more, we have a quicker turnaround on our test results so that when we do those nasal swabs, we can get those results done here locally. We have an exceptional um, lab facility at our um, Gunnison Valley Health System that really has a um, state-of-the-art system as well as a certification from um, CLIA, which is the highest standard you can get. And they have machines available to do that testing, but they don't have the specific test cartridges to do it yet. And so I've spent a lot of time and a lot of um, bargaining trying to get those for us. I'm not there yet, but I think that'll be a priority for us to get. And I've made that known to every um, contact at the state uh, level possible. And then uh, just to shift over to contact tracing, the contact tracing is a normal uh, public health measure that's carried out here um, in our county uh, routinely. And we do that for things like Giardia if somebody um, has an infection with the uh, Giardia, we um, follow up and find out from them not only where they may have been exposed, but how to limit the risk for transmitting that to someone else. Same with a hepatitis A or a hepatitis B case or a whole array of different communicable diseases. We don't typically see uh, more than half a dozen in a month um, on average in Gunnison County, but uh, the public health nurse 
that I um, have that's assigned to that duty, she does that on a regular basis. The difference is now we need to ramp it up to just a bit higher level so that we can do that quickly and we can do that very comprehensively and that we can collect that data and be able to analyze that data in a, in a pretty much real-time fashion so that we can identify what might the risk have been for that person, where may they have contracted COVID-19, and who may they have put at risk to get COVID-19 so that we can not only isolate the person but identify where we may have um, opportunities to limit the risk for the virus spreading in the community. So we have identified and created a protocol for that. We've also identified a plan on how to implement that, and we're working to um, develop a uh, training with some volunteer healthcare professionals in our community, along with working with the state health department that has hired uh, 50 students from the University of Colorado to help, and they're planning to assign them to different counties. So we'll have that um, assistance to help us also to be able to do that contact tracing. Do you have any update for us on the testing of the sewer system? Um, I, we had a couple people that had heard about that and were curious to know if there was anything you could update us. Uh, on that. I, I, sure. I'd like to give you more of an update than I have. What I really have is that we 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 have limited results back so far. So we really have um, different systems that have um, submitted. Some of those reports have come back with nothing detected. Some of the reports have come back um, for just one week, and we only have one system that has two weeks of data. So we don't really have any pattern or trending at this point. And that's what I was really hoping for is that we could see over a period of serial tests, meaning one after another, week after week, maybe for four weeks or longer, that we would actually see some patterns emerge of increasing or decreasing um, virus detection. We don't have that yet. And uh, we have spent some time on a couple of conference calls with the researchers um, that are doing that research. They're actually doing it in a number of cities and they have actually had to cut off um, communities that were interested in doing that work because they don't have any more capacity. So they have quite uh, actually have thousands of uh, municipalities sitting on a waiting list. So I feel fortunate that we're in that um, research. We just don't have any data yet to, to really say what it means at this point. Hopefully we will in the coming weeks so. Sure. Uh, Chris Rourke, I believe you had a question related to testing as well. I've got a couple of them. Um, in the tracing, in talking about uh, contact tracing, I noticed in the scientific research report, there was a mention of cell phones. And I've heard this on a national level that cell phones can be used to track uh, who a person's contacted. And it was recommended in that report. Do you intend to do that? Yeah, it's still a question in my mind, Chris. It certainly requires that that's something that our community wants to do and that individuals would want to do. It's an opt-in system. It's a system where an individual would have to say they were interested in having that um, and they were willing to do that. Not only do they have to sign up for it, but they have to actually put the settings on their phone to allow for that kind of tracking to be done. Okay, because so, you're not going to hack into my Google account and find out where I've been, right? I'm not. Okay. I'm not, Chris. I personally am not going to, nor is anyone on the research team going to do that, Thank nor you. are we interested in doing that. We wanted to know that that what that option looked like. It's something that's being looked at. You're right at the state and at the national level, and it may not fit for our county. And frankly, we have had such an amazing um, response in our community from so many community me members that have really rallied to not only embrace and you know make changes based on these public health orders to really help protect themselves and their neighbors, but also you know changing so many different aspects of our 
county that I would expect we would still see that through contact tracing and that we wouldn't have to even have that conversation. But I think it's an option that the, um, you know, that the team looked at and they wanted to include in the report. The other thing I had a, a question about in the, in the science report is, you know, we don't want to see another surge because we don't want to overwhelm the hospital system. And that's been a given all along. At one point they said we had 18 people hospitalized and I've never heard in, in the daily reports it being over seven or eight. So can you explain that? Sure, it really had to do with folks that were, had been transferred out and remained in the hospital. So, you know, we still have individuals that remain in um, regional hospitals that have been there for weeks. And so that sort of accumulated. So when we transferred out multiple folks, plus we had multiple admissions at the same time, that's really where that expanded number came from. If we get a second surge, can't you do the same thing? Maybe. It will depend somewhat on what's happening regionally and across the state, what the healthcare system capacity is across the state. I can tell you at the time that we were first experiencing that first surge that we had, we were ahead of the curve elsewhere in the state. And so there was capacity at the regional hospitals and we were able to utilize that capacity to really get all of our um, critically ill patients to the best care possible and get them to a lower altitude get them where they had an intensive care unit. And I hope that continues to be the case for us. I just can't predict the future. Um, I don't know what that will look like. Okay. And then my last question uh, in regards to testing is, there have been some reports and I've also, I've also spoken to people who um, have either come up with a negative test and then tested positive for antibodies or there are people, um, Missy Chamberlain is one person I interviewed and she's been tested twice and has come back negative. Doctors clearly think she has this illness. Uh, another doctor friend of hers told her that, you know, they had to test somebody four times before they got a positive result. So my concern is, and, and I want you to speak to this, if we marry ourselves too close to testing, maybe we never open the economy. Maybe we never venture outside. So isn't there a way of monitoring illness without necessarily doing all this testing and then gauging those numbers and, and doing the dance as you have spoken to based on that, rather than being so married to a test that may not be reliable? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question, Chris. And I don't disagree. There are points of failure in the testing. Uh, nasopharyngeal swab is not a pleasant experience. If somebody didn't have an unpleasant experience, we probably didn't get a good specimen. There's also a, an opportunity for a failure at the lab itself. Of course, we have no control over those labs that are doing the testing currently. So there are points of failure, and we do think that there are test failures. But by far, ma the majority of the tests are accurate, and this is a reliable test. When it looks for that fingerprint, that is an identifier that's solid. The difference between this test and the tests that are being done in serology is that those tests that are being done in serology is really looking for not just the RNA for this um, particular virus, but it may be looking for the RNA of any coronavirus, which 90% of our population has already been exposed to and would show that they had antibodies. Those antibodies may not be specific to this uh, coronavirus. But I agree with you, Chris. I can't marry myself and I can't marry our recovery on any one data point. And testing is not the only data point that we can look at. We've got to look at that in concert with all the data points we have available to us. The reliability of the self-report um, data is phenomenal. And when we map that between individuals that actually had been tested, had self-reported, and then had been tested, there was a mirror match, which means that if folks report to us 
what they're feeling and what their symptoms are early, we're going to see that climb actually probably before we'll see positive test climb. We might even see Tylenol sales climb before we actually see folks reporting, before we actually see folks getting tested. So there's a lot of data points that that um, team is looking at for me and trying to find the best sources of that data. And then in my opinion, Chris, we've got to marry and look at those in mirrors and look for patterns and trends between them. And if one is an outlier, obviously we can't rely on that alone. And I think testing is one of those that gives us good data. It's objective data, but that data is not 100%. No data point will be. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, you are listening to KBUT Community Radio for the Gunnison Valley. Heard at KBUT Crested Butte 90.3 and 88.7 KGNI Gunnison. My name is Christopher Biddle. This has been uh, a special broadcast Q&A with local officials discussing their response to the COVID-19 crisis. We, I just want to do one round table before I let everyone go, and I will go ahead and start. I'd like to ask everybody to, uh, because we talk a lot about how this is um, a response by the whole community and uh, participation in these public health orders and social distancing and so on and so forth. The success depends on um, all of us in the community. I'd like to ask everyone here how, uh, you know, if, if they were asked by a member of the public uh, how to get involved, how they can learn more, uh, how they can support you in your mission. Uh, so us here at KBUT, we're going to continue to do these weekly sessions, uh, and we want to hear from the public about those. Keep those questions coming in. Send them to news at kbut.org. Uh, I would love suggestions, for instance, on who else you'd like to see on this panel. So that's how I'd like to get my public involved um, and and uh, help us out uh, to continue to bring this to the community. Uh, does anyone uh, feel like they want to jump in uh, and let us know how the community can help you out? Hi, Chris, it's Joni and I'd be glad to start. I, um, I applaud and appreciate the work that the community has done. And I think there's lots more opportunity. One of the things that I think could be helpful is to have um, the whole choir singing and talking about the experience of COVID-19. I think we can hear from some uh, voices currently, and I'd like to hear from all the voices. I think there are a lot of different professionals and individuals out there that have varied perspectives. I think there's some individuals that are still very scared. I think there's some individuals that want to go much slower and more cautiously. And I think there's others that want to go much faster. And, and I think there's perils, as I've mentioned, um, through all these paths. But I think having that whole choir would be helpful. I think this is such a connected community and hearing from throughout the network would be really valuable. I think I would appreciate that opportunity. Jonathan Halk, do you have anything you want to add? Sure. You know, I think um, in the way you phrased the question, you said, you know, how can folks help out with your mission or my mission? I, I think the place to start is reminding all of this, this is our mission. And what we're trying to do is have the minimal health impacts in our community and not let our economy completely tank. And I, I want to reiterate the folks that, you know, this, this is an economic and a health issue unfolding in, in an epic proportion at the exact same time. And I think, you know, just a reminder to folks about uh, kindness and, and thoughtfulness. And um, we're all frazzled. We are all scared. We are all at places that we've never been before. Um, and take that moment, you know, look out for, for someone that's around you, connect with someone, you know, with a phone call or a check-in, uh, 
that's meaningful. And, you know, to our business community, I want them to hear, we all want to find success. We don't want to lose businesses. We don't want people's life savings and their life work to, to, to not make it through this. And, and how do we reach out, uh, especially to that community? How can we support them with the limited amount of commerce they can have in this time? What are things that we've never thought of before that we could do that, that supports, uh, the, the people who have made this community what it is. And, and I know it's easier for us to snap at each other or get tribal or, or, or camp out uh, with, with folks who, you know, you know, that, that, that want to find um, fault, but there, there's a lot of fault, but there's amazing amount of good things happening right now. And I know it's hard to see them as good things, but we're rethinking ideas and business strategies and, and how we relate to each other. I think all of us, whether you're home by yourself individually or with a family, you're learning new dynamics of your life and how you communicate, connect. And, you know, I know a lot of people will, you know, I'll wait for the fallout on it when this is over, but and we got to love each other. And I really was proud of the message that went out from the mayors and went out to, uh, from uh, the commissioners, but it was really a message to and from the community. Our community is made up of second homeowners. It's made up of part-time residents. It's made up of university students. It's made up of people who live here full-time and it's made up of our guests and visitors. And everybody is feeling the impact of this that loves this community. And we need to get through it in a way um, where we're binding together as much as we can. We should be asking hard questions. We should be pushing issues that are difficult. We should lean into the things that are really hard, but we can do that in a way that isn't continually dividing us, it's bringing us together. So I'm not saying we avoid the hard things, but there's a way with kindness and thoughtfulness and compassion that we can lean into those hard, painful and scary moments we're having. And so my encouragement to everyone is they've been doing it. This community's been rocking through this, meeting the challenge, no matter how hard it is. The reason we get to start opening things up today and looking for opportunity is because the community's done what was asked of them as hard as it was, the community did it. We can make the ask. The community did the work. And so I'd encourage the community to keep doing the work. Jonathan, can I ask you a question? You can. I don't want to bring up a bad wound, but I want you to speak to this because in the spirit of kindness, um, perhaps it's best for people to hear it directly from you. Our part-time residents were hurt when they were told not to come. They received a postcard that told them, do not come here. And I know some are listening now. Um, and I, I know that mistakes are made along the way because we're all human and we're all trying to do the best, best you know, we can. What would you say to them right now? Those who feel hurt and who, who feel that they're not wanted in this valley or they're only wanted for specific reasons, what would you say to them? One, as I would start with acknowledging that the hurt and the slight that they feel is real and, and, and I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, I think that uh, a public health measure of limiting their ability to come here uh, was something that Joni had to do and I support that decision. The messaging was horrible and you know, I, I've shared, I, I've spent a lot of time over the last week on, on phone calls with, with part-time residents and, and uh, you know, talking to them about this issue. And one thing I've shared with them, and I want to share with everyone listening, and, and you'll see more of this uh, coming in the papers and in, in correspondence directly back to them, 
is that the the action was the right public health action. The way it was messaged was horrible, and it and that postcard was terrible, and that it went out in a sense of like someone said to me, uh, another commissioner said, "God, do you ever feel like we're building the fire truck on the way to the fire?" Um, this this is an emergency that none of us planned for or understood and were prepared, but not at this magnitude. And so what went out was not thoughtful. It did not represent the values of this community. Um, if it had crossed the desk of the Board of County Commissioners or, or other folks, that message would not have gone out like that. But I accepted the Board of County Commissioners is where the buck stops. And so as the chairman of the Board of County Commissioners, as an individual member, Rowan and John, and on behalf of this county, I have offered this apology, a true heartfelt apology numerous times, and I will continue to every person that needs to hear it. The ask was right. The messaging was horrible. And it doesn't, an apology won't just make that go away. And I think as a community, we have a responsibility. I know I, as someone who's asked to be a leader in this community and the board sees it this way as well, we have an opportunity not just to say, I'm sorry, but how do our further actions, how do our uh, continued efforts, not only say, I'm sorry, but demonstrate that we're sorry. Everyone in this, everyone in this community. And when I say community, again, it's our full-time, part-time residents. It's our students at Western. It is our visitors and guests. Um, it's all of us. Um, that correspondence did not represent the values of what this community is. And so I've called on the community as well for our full-time residents. Think about what your interactions are like. This isn't the time to be yelling at someone in a parking lot because of the license plates that are on their car. This is not a time to, uh, you know, be monitoring everything that's going on. Like I said earlier, let's reach out with kindness and thoughtfulness and generosity and compassion and love. That's what this community is about. That's the path forward. And I will say without any hesitation, an apology is owed, it is offered, and it will be continued to be offered because that messaging was not good at all. Thank you, Chris Work, for bringing that question up. And uh, thank you, Jonathan, for answering it so thoughtfully. Um, I want to continue to try to wrap up so we don't have to keep our panel on too much longer. But uh, Darcy Perkins, um, again, I'm doing a sort of a roundtable here. What would you like? What kind of message would you, would you like to send to the community uh, in terms of how they can get involved or how they can learn more or uh, yeah, what they can do? Sure, thanks. Um, first, I just want to say thank you to Joni. Uh, personally, having worked really closely with the subgroups, I feel the pain of businesses firsthand. I hear their, their suffering. Um, and I know what Joni is doing is very hard. Uh, she has saved lives, and we are so lucky to have her and her background and experience in our community. I want to thank her also because she is open, and she wants to hear from us. And it is time now that she is asking for more information and um, and she will be, uh, she has been listening to the subgroups and she's going to be connecting with them more this, this week. So I'm really grateful because the burden that is on her shoulders is too much for anyone to carry alone. And so um, I just want to say thank you. And I hope we all here on this can call can help you carry that burden. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about the subgroups, they can go to the website, thecovid19.gunnisoncounty.org, and um, 
join any of our calls and help get messages to Joni if you have thoughts. She cannot handle 15,000 people's comments. And I just ask the community to try to trust in the process to getting you answers to questions that probably 20 others of you have on the same call. So that's all I have. And I just wanna thank everyone for doing their part. We would not be having this conversation today about reopening if we didn't follow what Joni has done. So thank you to everyone. All right, and Kathy Pagano, uh, same question to you as well. What would you like to say to the public? Well, you know, I'm really proud to be a resident of the Gunnison Valley. Um, I have been since for many years, but certainly during this pandemic and during this emergency and crisis, um, the thoughtfulness and the hard work and the dedication to our community that I see from, you know, from staff um, at the EOC, from community members, from small business owners, from volunteers, um, from all sorts of folks trying to make this place the best that it can be, pull their neighbors, pull their friends, colleagues, kids through this um, in a way that um, we, you know, thrive in the end, um, I think is, uh, is incredible. And so I'm really proud to be a resident here. And I'm so happy to see, you know, the businesses um, starting to reopen this week. Um, I got a call from my hair, hair stylist today that I get to get a haircut in a couple weeks, which I'm really excited about. Ray. <laughs> um, and so, and you know, the hard work that each business owner is really doing to consider how to keep themselves safe, their employees safe and their customers safe. Cause I know that's top of mind um, for them. And I, I um, applaud them for the work that they're doing there. So I'm really proud to, you know, be a part of this, to live here, um, to be part of this community. And just like Jonathan said, I encourage us all to try to give each other grace and kindness um, and, you know, understand that we are all going through an incredibly difficult time um, that none of us have ever experienced before. There is no roadmap for this. Um, and so we're best in it together um, and trying to see the future um, and, and figure out the path forward. And I'm happy to be part of the team um, and happy to take input um, from our community members. So thank you. And before we move on, I just want to make sure that everyone out there in Radio Land knows that all of us just gestured to our own hairstyles and indicated how excited we are about having, uh, going, being able to go back to the salon. Uh, that was, it was funny to look down and see. I actually was wishing I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Chris Rourke, I, I don't want to let you off the hook as well. I'd like to pose the same question to you. Um, what message would you like to send to our community? Oh gosh, there's a lot. Um, you know, I've had my head down into things on like a microscopic level, but sometimes it's hard to pull my head up and, and kind of look around at what's going on. But I think it's important to know that um, we are all human. We don't always, um, we're not robots and we don't make the right call. And this is uncharted territory. I think communication is a key piece. I, I've seen where, and to nobody's fault or blame, communication does break down um, it always breaks down, you know, it always, it always hurts relationships when communication breaks down. So um, I'm looking forward to the community opening up. I think Joni's been flexible enough to realize that if something, you know, does need to be tweaked, heck, we're going on 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th revisions, I, I'm sure will be coming along the way. But um, it's been really a privilege to uh, be able to engage on this level and to be able to 
communicate what's going on and hopefully to answer questions because I think that's when people are the most discouraged is when they don't have answers. So Chris, thanks for including me in this. I've appreciated it a lot. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us. Um, we've so much appreciated having you. And thank you to the rest of our panelists this evening. Uh, this has been a very um, a, a great conversation. Uh, and I, we, I really appreciate you joining us all and speaking honestly uh, and answering questions from our community. Thank you, of course, to all our listeners. I want to let folks know that we are going to make a recording of this available on our, on our, um, on our website, kbut.org. Make sure to keep your eyes and ears out for that. Uh, coming up next here on KBUT, it is Bobby's World, so you got that to look forward to. Uh, again, and just one final time, thank you to all of our panelists.